Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior ETF Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Nancy Tangler, who's the CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sumit. Yeah, great to have you. And Nancy, I wanted to start off by kind of talking about the macro picture, because recently, we saw the interest rates on the 10-year treasury bond hit the highest level in around 16 years. Should investors be more concerned about that? So I actually don't think so. And the reason is that if you if you look, I mean, what's important to investors is our real rates. And, and so I went back and looked in the 90s because rates were higher um, then when I was investing. And um, we had real rates that were anywhere between two to four and a half percent. Um, and stocks did quite well in that period in environment. We're only at a real rate on the 10-year of about 2%. And inflation is coming down. So we think not. And we don't expect to continue to see rates um, move up as in the at the pace or the trajectory that they have in recent weeks. Gotcha. Absolutely. That's a great point. Real rates are what matters. Speaking of, you know, real rates and um, the 10-year hitting a 16-year high, a lot of people are saying rates are moving up on the long end because growth in the U.S. is accelerating. And one thing they point to is the Atlanta Fed's model for GDP growth. And according to that model, GDP growth in the third quarter could be 5 or 6%. What do you think is going on with growth? Because I thought all the interest rate hikes that the Fed did we're supposed to slow down growth and maybe even cause a recession. Yet here we're seeing maybe growth accelerate. You and you and Jay Powell. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that one of the things we have to remember is that going into this rate hike, hiking re- regiment, regime, sorry, many individuals and many corporations had already sort of positioned themselves by refinancing at super low rates. So it's not having rate increases are not having the the effect that they've historically had because there's so many people that are insulated from it. So yeah, the mortgage rates at seven and a half percent, but something like 50% of people are, have a mortgage below uh, 4%. So they're not forced to refinance. They're, they're not being um, penalized by, by some of the rate hikes or not just some, but all the rate hikes. On the corporate side, you know, balance sheets are in pretty great shape. Probably one of the better environments since my career. And I began investing in the mid 1980s. Uh, and and they have companies have a lot of cash. So I think that's one of the things that's driving, I guess, a lack of, I, I don't know, distress in corporate America. And then separately, you know, companies have, have a lot of uh, room, wiggle room to work with uh, margins. And so you saw layoffs in some of the tech names, for example. You've seen pretty relentless price increases from some of the consumer discretionary and consumer staple names. But then if you look at like some of the underlying earnings, just, just look at McDonald's as a bellwether. The company um, has increased their downloads of their digital app more than any other restaurant in the United States, four times more than Star, uh, Starbucks downloads. All the while, Burger King, actually, their their digital app usage actually shrunk 8%. So the companies that are tra- are transforming, are it's showing up in margins, it's showing up in growth. And I think that's one of the things that people have really not paid a lot of attention to. 
Yeah, those are great points. And yeah, I do find it interesting, this idea that people, consumers and corporations locked in interest rates when they were really low one and a half, two, three years ago. So they're insulated from all of the Fed's rate hikes. Yet even so, we have seen inflation come down from, you know, a peak of 9% last year down to three, four percent, whatever you want to call it. So given that, do you think the Fed has done enough and they can finally stop hiking rates now? Yeah, I do. Um, I thought they'd done enough a, a while ago. I, I think that the great tragedy in this whole thing will be that the Fed, by waiting and dithering for almost a year, really, it was a self-inflicted wound that didn't have to uh, impact so many uh, people and especially the low end of the income cohort because they just they just waited too too long to raise rates and allowed inflation um, to really accelerate you know in I'm in Lake Tahoe and we we do forest management so one of the things you do is you, you control burn the underbrush and what we know is that a control burn can turn into a wildfire just like that and that's really what happened with the fed and they waited even after it accelerated they waited way too long to 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 step in and they moved too slowly at the front end and then i think they've gone too far now but um we'll we'll hear what the fed chairman has to say at jackson hole but i i, I think they should be done and they probably are done. Gotcha. Yeah, I love that analogy with the controlled burns. Well, you know, it, it does seem like the market is finally accepting the fact that the Fed is probably done with its rate hikes. Yeah, recently, we just saw the S&P 500 sell off about just shy of 5%, not a huge move lower. But do you think that this could turn into something bigger or is this a buying opportunity? I do think it's a buying opportunity because we did enter a new bull market last October. The bears are loath to give up. So, you know, you saw everybody um, you know, saying it was a head fake for about six months. And now and then right about the time the market started to sell off and correct a little bit, uh, you had all the strategists, upgrade, you know, upgrading their year end targets. We, we don't we don't look at the world that way. But the names that we were adding to last fall, we were actually selling in or trimming. I would, we weren't selling them trimming in, in this late in the summer, early and midsummer. And so we would be wanting to buy, uh, add back to some of those names and add to some new names uh, in the industrial space. So um, that's what we've been doing is just really deliberately stepping in. Because I, I think what we saw in the earnings season is that Managements have have really delivered great companies and great management teams delivered um, in a very difficult environment last quarter. And so it matters what you own. You, you know, it's probably um, much more important to to be focused on the higher quality names in each sector. And that's really what we do in, in, in our ETF TGLR. Gotcha. And I do want to talk about your ETF in a second. But before we do, you know, now that we're on the topic of the S&P 500, the last time the S&P 500 was at a record high was in the early part of 2022 or so. So it's been quite a while since we've uh, been at all-time highs. Do you anticipate that the market is going to make new all-time highs either this year or next year? I do. Yeah, I do. You just have to look at earnings. And next year, um, we're going to see, you know, you had easy comps um, for next year. And so I think that plus the acceleration that we're starting to see in revenues uh, at, at a lot of companies that we own anyway, um, the improvement in margins, uh, the increased guidance, uh, a dollar that isn't punishing invest or corporations and investors, 
and and there's you know there's a number of things to like in this environment. Um, so we we do think that we will re revisit and then push through the highs, but it, it doesn't you know it's not a straight trajectory as you know, Sunit. So uh, we we use the weakness and the uh, volatility to to really add to high quality companies and. I'll just say this, we're not, you know, in going into 2020, we couldn't find any high quality names that were at attractive valuations. And so we actually put a hedge on our clients' portfolios. That's not the, we're not having that problem right now. There's a lot of great companies that we're getting access to. Uh, and that that tells me, you know, that's, that goes to this supposed lack of breadth. But that's an opportunity. Investors should view volatility and and uh, the lack of breadth as as their as their friend and use it to, to for the long term. That's great. So you did touch on a second ago, Nancy, your ETF, which is the Laffer Tangler Equity Income ETF, ticker symbol TGLR. You launched this just recently, and if I'm not mistaken, this fund focuses on high quality companies. Can you tell us more about that? I've been managing money using this valuation metric that we employ in TGLR since the mid 1980s. Uh, this is not what you would expect to see from a traditional uh, equity income strategy. For example, at the moment, and mostly, we don't own electric utilities in this portfolio. Uh, we don't own uh, REITs occasionally. We own one right now. Uh, and, and we're really focused on what we call fallen angel growth stocks. And, and those are the opportunities that you get once every sort of generation, the kind of names that you can hold five to six to seven years, maybe even for a lifetime. And we, we become attracted to those names when their relative yields rise uh, into a, a range that historically has been an attractive uh, time to look at the stock. And what do I mean by that? Well, the company set the dividend based on what they think is a portion of long-term sustainable earnings power. So you get great insight from management around earnings growth. You know, Wall Street's wrong two thirds of the time every quarter, one way or another. You know, companies surprise two thirds of the time. So we're we're not going to be better than Wall Street, which is not very good at estimating earnings. So what we wanted was um, a more reliable metric, and relative yield provides that. So we look at a stock's yield relative to its own history and relative to the S&P, and we graph it and then set the buy range and the sell range one standard deviation away from the mean. And what that does for us is it gives us a starting point. We don't have to buy a stock if it's in the buy range. That's when we then do our, our fundamental work. But it, it identifies names that many traditional equity income managers never get to own. Very interesting. And it, it sounds like this fund has about 25 to 35 holdings. Can you maybe tell us a, a couple of the names in the portfolio that people might be familiar with? And also, you know, do you have do you get any concerns from investors who look at 25 to 35 and feel like, that's a little bit concentrated. Years ago in the, in the 70s, and then again in the 80s, uh, Journal of Portfolio Management did some research on optimal diversification, and the number was actually 12. And so we do run a 12-stock portfolio for our clients, but our, it's really our 12 best ideas. But 25 to 35 is not overly concentrated. My, my experience with most portfolio managers is when they don't know, they buy two. And so they end up owning way too many stocks. They don't own a big enough position in many of the names to have a positive impact on total return. And so our, our position is if we don't have enough conviction to buy at least 2% in the portfolio, then we have no business owning it. 
So like if I gave you a couple of examples, I think a perfect example of how this has worked historically is Apple. So in 2013, Apple was yielding uh, about 3%, just under, I believe, which was above the 10 year, by the way, at that time. And nobody wanted to own the company. Uh, we, we did the work. We thought that there was, we, even back then, we thought services was critical to the future of the company. It was, it was nascent at that point. Um, and so we began accumulating the, the name because it was in the buy, not just on relative yield, but our secondary metric, which is relative price to sales ratio. Um, and so we were getting a double buy. We did the fundamental work. We began accumulating. And we've been trimming that stock ever since and then actually began to sell it in 2021 and then you know, almost got out and then got a chance to add back into it. And so it's a name that um, is in the portfolio. It, it would have been... At one point, it, it was 5% and we allowed it to run to 7 But now it's just a modest holding. It's about 2.5% in the portfolio. Uh, but it's not a name that you would expect to see in an equity income portfolio. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that famous index, only has 30 stocks and it's performed quite well over the long term, to your point. Exactly, exactly. So, so Nancy, before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add? No, I mean, I think um, I think one of the reasons we launched this, we probably could have picked a better month. We get a lot of inquiries at our firm that from folks that don't meet our minimums. And so we wanted to really provide access um, in this actively managed core strategy um, with, that it generates not only capital appreciation, but dividend growth. And to us, that's the operative um, aspect of equity income investing, not high absolute yield, but growing dividend income that really is a good hedge against inflation. And so I, I think um, for us, this was is an opportunity to to really democratize what we offer our high net worth clients. Fantastic. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Nancy, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Sumit. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.